right, ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It is great to see you all. All right, so this is Thanksgiving weekend, and this is our class entitled Fire. Okay, now here's the deal. We didn't start the fire. It was always, no, I don't know the words exactly, but okay, so what's the deal with fire? Fire is, fire and light are some of the, uh, the most often explored concepts in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy. And let me explain why. We've talked about light, as I look up at the lights in my room. I, so we talked about light, we've talked about light, light many times. At the core of it is a very simple idea. Light is always connected with the source of light. Ah, oh, my, my, my little Kabbalist. Right? Light is always connected with the source. With the source of light. Now, how do I know this? Because the moment we shut the light, right? we shut the source of light, the light that comes out of the source doesn't exist. It's not like it exists independently. It exists completely um, connected to the source. So that's why the Kabbalists love using the terminology of light. Because think about it. The way we relate, the way we understand God's relationship with the world is not designer design or artist and art. Because in those examples, right, when you talk about a designer and their design, or an artist and the art, or an author and a book, or you know, any of these arrangements or scenarios, there's a disconnection between creator and creation to the point that the creation can exist independently of the creator. For example, Picasso, who's my go-to guy, right? Picasso paints a painting. He does not need to be constantly painting it for the painting to exist. Right? He does not, Don, I love the eyes on your cat. They're glowing. It's incredible. Okay, here's the deal. The, the artist does not need to be constantly creating or recreating the art for the art to exist. Picasso paints it. I'm not taking away from it, obviously. I'm just saying. He paints it, and that's it. It's done. You have the greatest, um, uh, I don't know, the greatest author who writes a, writes a novel. Good. The, uh, it takes a lot of time and effort, etc. But once it's written, it doesn't need the author anymore. It's, it's its own creation that's living and breathing. By the way, the ancients believed that it was a similar way with the world. The ancients believed, that when I say ancients, I don't mean from a Jewish perspective. I mean from a philosophical perspective. The ancients believed that, yes, there was, there is, slash was, an original source, a prime mover, a first cause, right, that created or started everything into being, but now everything is moving on its own. It doesn't need a creator, which is why originally, when I say originally, in the origins of mankind, you know, after the first few generations, people, as Maimonides describes, people quickly devolved into idolatry because they believed that God is out of the picture and they were being nice to God. Because why should God be involved in this and in every nitty-gritty detail of the ongoings of this world? That sounds very tedious 
And that sounds way below God's pay grade, right? So God certainly is worried about more complex things, and the world is left to its own devices. Or God left it, left it in charge with, or God left in charge the constellations, the sun, moon, and stars, other forces of nature to run it, but you don't need the author. You don't need the artist himself or itself, right, to actively be involved with it. The beauty of light, of the analogy of light is, if you understand that all of this, and when I say all of this, I mean all of this, is but light, you know what it means? If this is here, the source is actively projecting it to be here. Are you with me? If you understand the entire process and structure of creation to be one of source of light and emanation of light, well, that directly teaches us or implies that the source is currently projecting the projection of light that we're experiencing. So, the Kabbalists love light. Light is similar to the source. Light is connected with the source. And in truth, that's our reality, even if we don't see it. You can look, listen, you can walk into a movie theater, you know, BC, before COVID. You can walk in, you can rent the movie theater today, whatever you want, however you want to do it safely. You can go into a movie theater and watch a movie on the big screen. And you can think that, the, that the, um, the characters and the images are coming to life on the screen. You can think that. But if you know the truth, you know that it's coming from behind you. There's a projector in the back, the back of the room, that's shining a light onto that screen. The screen is not dynamic. The screen, what you're seeing, is not dynamic. What you're seeing is but a projection from a source that's somewhere else. And so the Kabbalists try to open up our eyes to a new reality. That we are not self-contained, self-emerging, self-creating existences. But rather we are about projections from a source that is constantly projecting us into being. So the Kabbalists love light. Because light reveals the greatest secret of, of creation. The greatest truth of our existence. They also love fire because fire, of all of the elements, do you want to give me a candle? Can you give me a candle? Okay. Do you know where they are? In the drawer. Okay. Of all of the elements in existence, fire is the most magical. I mean, we have images of um, like cavemen, you know, ooh, fire. You know, in, in, in our tradition, you know the first human beings to discover fire? You know who that was? Adam and Eve, the first Saturday night. I'll, I'll give, oh, wow, you're so good. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. Can you get me some matches? She, she knows where the matches are, but she doesn't play with matches. That's my PSA. Kids, do not try this at home. Um, thank you, Reva. Look at you. Reva, do you light Shabbos candles with mom? Yes, yes you do. Okay, by the way, I should mention, the Rebbe had a campaign that girls as young as three should begin lighting Shabbat candles to train them in the mitzvah. Although, of course, you know, 
Um, we're not obligated in mitzvot until 12 or 13 for girls and boys. Nonetheless, the Rebbe said, safely, <laughs> don't, with a parent, it's a great mitzvah to, uh, to teach children. Do you like your mitzvah of lighting candles? There you go. Okay, this is a candle we're going to demonstrate soon with fire, with real fire. Ooh. Um, so we have this image, you know, I don't know where it comes from, of like cavemen, fire, and like being astonished and, and, and wondered by it. Look, in our tradition, here's what happens. Adam and Eve are created Friday, right? Day six of creation, which is the Friday. And Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And they cannot hold themselves back. Listen, they have like a few hours because they were created not first thing in the morning. They were created in like the sixth hour or so and kind of like midday. And all they had to do was get to Shabbos get to Shabbat without sin, and then the world would have been perfect forever. But they couldn't pull that off, friends. They went, they're like, oh, got to eat from the tree of knowledge. I mean, listen, we've all been there, right? We've all been there. All we had to do was wait a few hours, and we just we couldn't do it. So before we judge, we've we got to recognize that we're in the same boat. Nonetheless, what happens then is God get, designates that at, that at that point, no more Garden of Eden. I mean, that's kind of it. That, that ends that model. And now we have a new model of life outside the garden. Life outside of paradise. And of course, according to Kabbalah, the whole point is, that was God's imposed paradise. And now our job is to create our own paradise using the model that God has shown to us. So really, it's a good... Fine. There's a Kabbalistic angle on it. And that's, and that's true. And that's wonderful. But it's not for right now. But here's my point. God does not kick out, listen to this, God does not kick out Adam and Eve from the garden on that Friday. You know why? In other words, immediately upon the sin, God doesn't like hit the red button, the old ejecto button, <laughs> the old like, you know, or, you know, send them skyrocketing out. God doesn't do that. Why? Because that would be a miserable Shabbos. The first Shabbat in history, Shabbat is supposed to be a time of peace, joy, and tranquility, right? It's supposed to be a time of, you know, enjoyment physically and spiritually. Can you imagine how sad Adam and Eve would have been had they been bounced out of the garden right before Shabbat? That's terrible. So God had Rachmanus. You know, Rachmanus is God had compassion. God um, um, expressed kindness to Adam and Eve and didn't evict them until Saturday night. But they were evicted. <laughs> Saturday night they were evicted, and not only were they sent out of the garden, but they also lost the very special supernal light that they were enjoying um, at the beginning of creation. So at the beginning of creation, um, there was this light, this mystical, magical, beautiful light that was shining that they enjoyed on that first day, and that first Friday, and then Shabbat. Saturday night comes, they're out of the garden, and suddenly for the first time, they're plunged into darkness. Now, not necessarily physical darkness, but spiritual darkness, which also affects the physical darkness. It's just a state of darkness. And according to our tradition, Adam and Eve were a bit sad. Can you imagine? At this point, God didn't want them sad before Shabbat, but now at this point after Shabbat, now they're sad. So God, um, so God taught them the secret of creating fire so that even when... On, again, on a physical level, even when it's dark, they have the tools on their own 
to create light and warmth. And on a spiritual level, we now have, human beings now have been, conceptually, it symbolized the idea that even outside of paradise, having been plunged into a cold and dark environment, we have the tools on our own to light up the environment. So fire, by the way, that's why, here's a connection between this story and tradition and Jewish practice. What do we do on Saturday night? Oh, can you give me one more thing? Can you give me that candle? Thank you. I, have, I love having an assistant. It's fantastic. Can you reach it? Oh, can you also reach the other stuff? Yeah, or do you want yours? You want that one? Okay. On Saturday night, that's why we do a few things. Oh, okay. What do we do? So number one, we have a cup of wine, uh, which I don't have handy as a prop. I mean, this is, this is still from last night. Okay, but I do have some besamim. Besamim are, ooh, it's nice. Yeah. Yeah, you smell it, you like it? it these are, we use cloves. Some people use cinnamon. The, the nice um, spices that smell nice. The nice spices that smell nice. The good smelling spices. So we do that kind of to invigorate ourselves, having just experienced such a beautiful spiritual um, experience of Shabbat, going into the cold and dark week, so now we, we, we give ourselves a little bit of uh, a positive, positive scent to revive the spirit. And we also light a, what kind of candle? Right, a Havdalah candle. So the Havdalah candle is very unique in that it's comprised of multiple wicks. I don't know if you can see that. It's comprised of multiple wicks. This has three wicks. They're kind of like mushed a little together. You see three wicks? Yeah. There you go. So it's always supposed to be a multi-wicked candle, and the fire is supposed to burn together, which is the idea of uniting our fires as one to produce a greater flame, which is, in general, a very important lesson in life. But here's the point. We light a candle Saturday nights because Adam and Eve lit the first fire Saturday night. The first fire, human fire, ever produced was that first Saturday night, right after Shabbat. So the way we mark the end of Shabbat and our entrance into the work week, into the, um, to the grind, right? That the world that is so often cold and dark is likewise by lighting fire. So that's a little bit of a bridge between this tradition as well as the ancient tradition of what happened with Adam and Eve and our tradition each and every Saturday night in the Havdalah ceremony. So what is the nature of fire? Fire is unique and, and, and the Kabbalists love fire because of all of the physical universe, everything that exists on earth, fire stands completely aside and unique from everything else. It's almost like everything else in existence, every other natural element exists in one modality and fire possesses a completely different nature. And I wrote about it in the email. I want to elaborate on it now and then, and then advance the conversation a little bit further. So the nature of created matter created things is that they want to create, sorry, they want to exist more. I'm going to say that again. The nature of existence, created existence, is that it seeks to exist more and more and more. So, you know, the, the, the nature of the human being is self-preservation. We want to exist. We want to protect ourselves. We want to eat. We want to drink. Why? Self-preservation and existence. 
You want to exist more. The nature of everything is to assert its own existence and to fight off any attempt to nullify its existence. So if, if, if any entity, in a, I mean, pretty much any entity that I'm aware of, if it senses, any entity in nature, if it senses an existential threat, it will provide some sort of self-defense in order to preserve its existence. So whether it's an animal in the wild or whether it's, I don't know, even a plant, everything asserts some sort of self-protection promoting what? Promoting its its um, its self-existence. Everything wants to be and doesn't want to not be. That's the rule of thumb. Everything wants to be. Now again, you're going to tell me what some people, again, the nature, by nature, the nature of a thing is to want to be. That's the nature. The only thing in existence that doesn't follow those rules is fire. Fire, by nature, doesn't want to exist. And we see this with, and the proof is in the pudding. What does fire do? This is something I've mentioned before, but it's, it's worth repeating and, and, and it's worth emphasizing. What, is, what does fire want to do? Fire wants to undo itself out of existence. Now, how does it do that? See, fire never wanted to be here in the first place. When you light... Yeah, for sure. When you light a candle... It is kind of hard to do this with this matchbook. It's like a delayed matchbook, whatever. All right, here we go. I'm lighting a fire, as you can see. Okay, Riva, we have to be careful here. Put it down. Yeah, I'm going to put it down. I can't put it. Okay. So, here's, the, here's fire. We're going to wait till the flame kind of elevates a little bit. Let's go. Let's go flame. By the way, as you can see, ooh, I don't know if you can see it so clearly, um, but as you know also, when, you, when you're dealing with a flame, there's a darker flame, and then it gets brighter and brighter as it goes up, right? Closer, closest to the actual um, wick. Also, on the bottom, it's blue. It's blue, right? It's, it's a darker color, exactly. And then the lighter you go, the, sorry, the higher you go, the lighter color it is. Kabbalah speaks about that. There's actually a beautiful discourse. Oh, now we're getting there. From the second Rebbe, known as the Mittler Rebbe, who actually, we just celebrated a few days ago, his birthday in Yartzeit on the same day, and the day that he was liberated from, from uh, incarceration for his activities um, in, in teaching Judaism and Hasidic philosophy. But anyway, I digress. The point is, that there's a be- there are beautiful insights onto, on the nature of the flame itself. But here's what I wanted to point out. A fire will always go up. The flame will always go up. So right now I'm holding it upward. If I hold it downward, and I want to make sure it doesn't drip on where it shouldn't drip. Ow. So the, f- the flame, ow. The flame always will go up. No matter where you turn it, how you twist it, the flame will always go up. Why? Kabbalah says it's because fire always identifies not with self, but with source. Everything else identifies everything else. By the way, another tradition that I wanted to let you know about, 
Traditionally, we try not to blow our candles with our mouths by blowing like that. Because a candle, as we'll see soon, is synonymous with the soul. So we never want to kind of um, enthusiastically blow out a fire. So we do it in an indirect way with, with kind of like blowing it with our hands or with something kind of to indicate that we're not excited like to extinct. Like a spatula. Yes, you could also use a spatula. Not the ones with the holes in it. Whatever. So here's the deal. Um, we, we do it in an indirect way because we don't want to in any way indicate that we're, we're excited to extinguish a fire because of the spiritual meaning of a fire. When it blows down now, there's only one. No, that only has one. This is three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a Shabbos candle. Okay, so back to our story. Fire identifies more with source than with self. Everything else identifies with self. And yes, friend, even birthday cakes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Again, again, I, I get it. It's, there's, there are other traditions and, and who am I to mess with America? But I'm just saying in the, in the traditional Jewish um, practice, we, we wave out candles and don't blow them out. Also, there's the idea that, you know, breath is like the breath of life. And, and we don't want to use the breath of life to extinguish fire, which symbolizes the soul, which is also life. Anyway, we do it indirectly and not, and not um, it's kind of like why after the Amida we step back three steps, we begin with our left foot. Because, you know, for most people, the right side is dominant, so we want to show that we're not excited to leave God's presence of, from the Amida with our right foot. Like, yeah, I'm out of here, it's been real. So we go with our left foot to kind of indicate a reluctance to do so, the same thing as when we extinguish a candle. By the way, of course, I should mention, when it comes to Shabbat candles, Right? We don't have a reason to extinguish them anyway. We just let them burn until they're out. And that's why we have candle holders. Can you get me a candle holder? Can you get me a candle holder? You know what I'm talking about? The silver things? That mommy puts the The little things. Yeah, thank you. Okay, which I'll show you in a second, the candle holders that I'm speaking of. Okay, so fire identifies more with source than self. And it's radically different than everything else. Everything else... No, just one. Fire identifies with, oh, no, no, not those, not those, the actual holder. Oh, we may not have. Okay, whatever, don't worry about it. You know those silver holders that people put candles inside? Yes, it kind of like, that's such a Jewish thing. Because, like, I mean, maybe it's also, no, those are just candles. So here's the deal. It's like, because on Shabbos, you, you light the candles and you let them burn all the way down. So safety first. So you have to have, you know, something that's going to prevent it from causing something untoward um, or that which you don't want to happen. Getting back to fire. So everything else in existence is about self-preservation and about self and source, whatever. I don't know what you're talking about. Source. Who knows source? I don't know source. But when it comes to fire, fire is source first. Fire says, I want to go back up. Oh, there you go. Yeah, if you want to look at Donna, Donna's screen, Donna's got an example of it, right? So that's the old Shabbos or holiday candle holder, right? It's a very Jewish product. I, I don't know if that exists in that form 
you know, and it's a it's a very because who else burns their candles all the way down and never and never burns them out on Shabbat? That's what we do because we don't want to extinguish fire on Shabbat. So we, we light it and we let it burn down. Always watch your candles. Don't leave them unattended, etc. That's my disclaimer. Even with the even with the with the candle holder. So okay, fire doesn't want to be here. That's why fire is always jumping upward. When you tilt the candle, it's always pointing upward. It always wants to escape. It wants to go back up to its source. So what is the nature of fire? Because it wants to go, but nebuch, which means shame, it's being held back by the wick and the fuel, whatever the fuel is, if it's oil, if it's, if it's paraffin, whatever it is, beeswax, Right? So what does fire do? It burns and burns and burns and burns. It destroys, essentially, the fuel and the wick until it can go home. That is what fire does. So you and I look at fire typically and we think, oh, fire is so destructive. Wow. You know, fire is so, it's so angry. Fire is so destructive and angry. But in reality, fire is not destructive and angry at all. Fire is spiritual. And all fire wants to do is go back to its source. It, fire wants to undo itself and not be. Everything else wants to be, to augment its existence. And fire wants to undo its existence. So fire burns through everything, which is why, again, as I said before, at the, t- at the top of this conversation about fire, fire is the most spiritual entity in existence. Fire is the most spiritual existence around. And and it's a beautiful metaphor of what I talked about before, what I alluded to before or mentioned before in passing, a beautiful metaphor for the soul. Because what is the nature of the soul? In a very similar way, the soul wants to connect back with its source. But the soul has a wick and fuel, the body and, and other elements that hold it down in this world. But the soul is always flickering is always pointing upward again, so to speak. It's pointing back to its source. The only difference is the soul has an awareness that despite its own nature, which is to undo itself, it has a mission that transcends its nature. It's almost like God is saying, I know what you want to do, but here's what I want you to do. Little neshamala, little soul Here's the deal. I know what you want to do. You want to come back home. But do you know what I want you to do? I want you to be there for 120 years, please God, and to make a difference and to make a transformation, starting with your own body and your own animal soul and spreading out to the larger world around you. That is what God wants. And so the soul, like a fire, burns brightly as long as it's being held by the wick. By the way... This helps explain a mystical understanding of what death is, right? What is death? One definition of death is when the wick, the candle, if you will, of the body no longer is healthy or able enough to hold on to the fire of the soul. Because remember, the soul's nature is to pull upward and to keep the soul here locked into a body is against the nature of the soul. Are you with me on this? 
It, it constantly is defying gravity, almost. The gravitational pull of the soul is upward. To be held downward is to counter its own, the nature, the very nature of the soul. Well, to do that, you need a force that overwhelms the force of the soul. So when the body is healthy, when the body is able, and when the other conditions are right, it's able to hold on to the, uh, the body is able to hold on to the soul. But when the body is, is, is no longer able to do so, the soul is let go of, if you will, and the soul returns back to its source because that is its nature. Again, think about a fire. After there's no wick or fuel to hold on to the flame anymore, what happens? The flame goes out. Kabbalah would say the flame doesn't go out. The fire returned to its source. The, the, the spiritual source of fire, which is an ethereal force that you can't see or touch, doesn't feel like heat or fire. You can't see it with your own eyes like light. Nonetheless, it exists. That flame has now returned to that ethereal source of fire because it's no longer being captured, um, held in captivity. I don't want to make it sound too depressing, but it's no longer held by the wick and the fuel. Does that make sense? So this is the nature really of life and death from the soul's perspective. That's why it says, it says in Proverbs, Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam. Ner Hashem, the candle of God, is Nishmat Adam, is the soul of man. Human, not man specifically, the humankind. So the human soul is God's candle, is God's fire, right? Just like, and Kabbalah explains, just like a fire always strives upward and seeks to undo its terrestrial manifestation and return to its source on high, so to a soul. But again, the only difference is that the soul understands at some point the soul gets, especially when we study you know, the deeper teachings of Torah, the soul gets at some point that it has a mission on earth that is not necessarily exactly what it wants what it would have chosen for itself. By the way, and that's the truth in life. Oftentimes we do things, or let me say it more specifically, we need to do things that on our own we wouldn't have chosen. But it doesn't matter because that's what you need to do, right? There's so many things that we do that we don't want to do. So the soul doesn't want to be here. It says in Pirkei Avot, it says in, in the Mishnah, it says, against your, against your will, you're alive. In other words, life is against the will of the soul. The soul doesn't want to be here. Life meaning life on earth. The soul doesn't want to be here. But at the same time, the soul knows that it needs to be here. So therefore, therefore it's against our will that we die. Because the soul, although it doesn't want to be here, it recognizes the importance of it being here. So on some level, it also wants to be here. But it's, it's still its nature is, its gravitational pull is, opposite everything else in existence. It's not downward, it's upward back to its source. So that's a little bit about fire. Why do I mention fire? First of all, this is the month of fire. It's the month of light, Kislev. The, Hebrew, the Jewish month that we're in is a month of, of light and fire. It's a month of, of, of the light of Torah, the light of Hanukkah, the, fire, the flames of Hanukkah. So it's, it's, th this month is associated with, uh, with, with fire. It's also because next Monday night, our jewelry workshop, right, 
has flame and fire symbolisms abounding, right? It has, right? Yes? Okay. So the just. Earrings, uh, the earrings have a little, little, the tip of the flame, golden flame tips. Yeah. That's what the earrings are. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have fire symbolism. So this is the month of fire in general. That's one connection. But there's another connection. And it has to do with chapter 31 of our text, which we're going to jump into in a moment. In Deuteronomy, in the final... Wait a second. The final... The final chapter of the Torah. The, the last chapter of the Bible, the five books of Moses. Moses says something incredible. As he's blessing the people. You know what? I'm going to share my screen with you and I'm going to show it to you. So, um, give me a second. Let me share this. Hold on. Give me a sec. Let me find where this tab is that I created. Ah, here we go. Okay, here we go. Beautiful. So I just share my screen with you. This is from safaria.com, which is an incredible resource. If you want to study, I mean, it's kind of like a research and study resource. Basically has almost every Jewish book every Jewish text in existence in the original language. And some, some, some of them are translated. The Torah, of course, is translated. So here we go. Um, this is the final Torah portion, the last one in the, in the five books of Moses. It's called Vizot HaBracha, chapter 33. As you see, 33... Oh, what did I just do there? Oh, man. Chapter 33 of... Did your screen go blank like my screen went blank? Yes? Yes, yes. Of course it did, because yes. you're... Oh, here we go. All right. So here we go. So the Torah says, I'm just going to read the translation. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, bade the Israelites farewell before he died. Okay? So that's the introduction to the final, final chapter of the Torah. That this, will, this is the text, this is the transcript of the blessing that Moses blessed the Jewish people before he died. All right? So what's the blessing? He said, verse 2, right here. Verse 2. He said, the Lord came from Sinai. He shone upon them from Seir. He appeared from Mount Paran and approached from Ribaboth Kodesh, lightning flashing at them from his right. All right, now you and I can read this and be like, what is going on? What is he talking about? The Lord came from Sinai. Okay, I know Sinai. He shone upon them from Seir. He appeared from Mount Paran. He approached from Ribah Kodesh, lightning flashing at them from his right. What does that mean? So the, the cool thing about this website is that you can, if you like click on a verse, on the right side appear resources. So let's take a look at some resources. Commentary, for example. Rashi, for example. 
right? So this is a good way you can pull up your commentaries right alongside your, your main text. And by the way, when the commentary cites a verse with another um, uh, source, when it cites, sorry, when it cites another source with a... Um, Another source, it has a hyperlink to open up that source. So you can keep on, you know, finding and tracing um, ideas. I want to point out the meaning of the last few words of this verse. So I'm going to scroll down in Rashi, where it talks about Mimino Eish Das Lamo. Take a look at how Rashi translates it, which is not the way it appears here, by the way, in the translation. Lightning flashes at them from his right. Rashi gives another understanding. Eish dus. Literally, Rashi says, and I'm, again, I'm on the right side here. I just highlighted it. I hope you can see that. Um, literally, it means fire, law, or fire of law. Or I'm going to give my own, or I'll give another option. The fiery law. Or the law of fire, i.e., Rashi says, the law, by the way, law with a capital L refers to Torah. The law, which had been written before him, before God, from olden times in black fire upon white fire. And Rashi is quoting the Midrash Tanchuma. The meaning of this verse is, right, what is Moses saying? That God gave to them, Lamo, his people, upon the tablets, the writing of his right hand. Another explanation of Eshdas means, understand this is the Targum has it, that the law, the Torah, was, it's the law, the Torah, which was given them from the midst of the fire. Rashi has two interpretations of this, word, of this phrase, Miyamino Eshdas Lamo, from his right hand, a fiery law. I'm giving you Rashi's interpretation. From his right hand, a fiery law. That means... That the law itself, the Torah itself, originally, not in the way we got it, as ink, black ink on white parchment, but the way it was written by God before, from the olden times, as Rashi says, or before time, from time immemorial. What did the Torah look like then? It was black fire on white fire. This is not Rashi's invention of this imagery. This comes from the Midrash. This comes from the Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud. This comes from many, many sources. The, the notion of the black fire on the white fire. The other interpretation that Rashi cites is, the, um, is, is that the law, the Torah, was given amidst fire and lightning at Mount Sinai. But I want to focus on the first interpretation, which is the one that I included in this week's email that I sent out on Friday. The notion of the black fire on the white fire. So imagine this. Imagine you're looking at Torah, right? And imagine instead of a physical Torah, a physical parchment, which is a light-colored parchment with black ink laid on top of it, imagine instead a fire background, a, fire, a white fire background. Oh, I already showed you before white fire and dark fire. Remember? We had white fi light fire and, and dark fire and the candle. Yeah. So imagine a background of, of white fire and upon it is superimposed or laid upon it is our letters comprised of black fire. That is the way Torah existed originally 
And that is the way that Moses says God gave us the Torah. Eish das lamo. God gave the Torah as a fiery law. White, black, white fire with black fire on top of it, or black fire on the white fire. What does that mean? What's the white fire? What's the black fire? Much ink, physical ink, has been spilled on this, has been written, has been expended on this topic. I want to give you a few explanations. Some say that the white fire represents the soul, the mystical teachings. The black fire is the obvious teachings. Are you with me? Let me give you, let me, let me explain, let me, let me say this very simply. When you look at a Torah scroll, yeah, and you read it, or for, for that matter, because I have here a copy of the Chumash with the commentaries. This is chapter 33 of, uh, of Deuteronomy, what we're studying right now, but from the original Hebrew commentaries, right? When you're studying the Torah, right, you see letters on a white background, right? Or any book for that matter, but let's talk about Torah for a moment. You have black letters on a white background. So what are you studying? So you and I would say, we study the letters. No one studies the background. What's the background? The background is white space. What are you studying in the background? But, but our sages tell us that the Torah was black fire on white fire, which means that the white is not just a passive background upon which content is laid, but the background is also dynamic. Are you with me on what I'm saying? The notion of white fire and black fire tells us that the white fire, the background, is also dynamic. It's not a static background. It's a dynamic reality of Torah itself. And it means as follows. Again, according to some understandings, there's, there are many, many different ways of understanding this ancient statement. Here's one idea. There's, when you study Torah, there's what you see on the surface. That's the black fire. And then there's what you don't see immediately, but what drives what you see. In other words, in, 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 in other terms, there's the simple teachings of Torah or the straightforward surface teachings of Torah, and then you have the Kabbalah, the mystical teachings that are right there also, but not there necessarily on the surface that you can see in an obvious way. You have to learn how to read between the lines and how to look behind the letters to the white fire to find the mystical symbolism and the mystical tradition and the soul and the spirit of the message, not just its obvious, its obvious expression. So when it comes to Torah, there's the obvious expression, which is the black fire, and the secret meanings, which is the white fire. There are other ways to understand it, certainly, but I want to stick with this. We have white fire, we have black fire, we have the background, we have the foreground, is that what it's called? I don't know, whatever, what's, what's in the front, and then you have what's in the back. What's in the front is the obvious meaning of Torah, that's the black fire. But the white fire is just as real, the white fire is just as dynamic, the white fire is just as holy. And it's the secret messages. So that's one idea of the fire. And by the way, just like the fire, the physical fire, and the fire of the soul represents that which is different than everything else in creation. 
Everything else wants to be. And the fire doesn't want to be. The soul doesn't want to be. The same thing is true with Torah, with a, with a bit of understanding. It's not that the Torah doesn't want to be, but the Torah represents something that's not of this reality. Just like fire represents a reality that belongs somewhere else, and the soul, by its nature, represents a reality that belongs really somewhere else, only here on a mission, but really belongs, is at home somewhere else. The same thing is true with Torah. Torah is a throwback. Torah is not like old school, but Torah Torah belongs in a different realm. Torah is pure and it's holy. And it's not of this world. Torah is not made of the stuff of physical existence. Torah is made of spiritual reality, spiritual truths. Which is why, circling back to our text, which is why Torah is the container of truth in this world. And Torah is the, is the catalyst for peace in this world. Again, when Torah is kept pure, now a person, plenty of people could study Torah and distort it and, and, and use it for their own, you know, selfish purposes to become, you know, to fuel their own ego. Look, I'm a scholar and to, uh, to create divisiveness. Oh, look, I'm doing this. You're not doing this. Of course. But that's not the flaw. The flaws, when that happens, the flaw is not with Torah. The flaw is with human beings that are using a pure tool for something impure. But the Torah itself is pure. It's fire. It's white fire. It's black fire. Even the obvious meaning is fire. The Kabbalah is fire. The simple meaning is fire. The entire existence of Torah is fire that comes from God's right hand. And so Torah represents a purity of reality that doesn't exist anywhere else. Every, everywhere else that we look in this world, we see things that are not pure, things that are corrupted. And by the way, there's corruption that is imposed by our choices, but then there's the natural corruption. In other words, there's the godly, divinely intended corruption. God desired to create a world that doesn't obviously see him. God intentionally created a world in which his own reality as author and director and producer is hidden. That was by intention. And so God intended it to create a reality where he's not obviously seen. But then he put in it the Torah. He gave us the Torah. And the Torah contains the truth, the blazing, flaming, fiery, bright and warm truth. The truth about God, the truth about our own soul, the truth about reality, the truth about existence. Torah equals the truth of everything. And Torah equals peace and shalom. Because when you know the truth, not the corruption, when you know the truth, you can get along. Because my truth at the core is the same as your truth at the core. What gets in the way of us getting along are the things that are not so true. The divisions that are not as real as what is ultimately true. So, as we've been discussing in chapter 31, if we would like to achieve, again, from, listen, if you're, if you're studying a, a Kabbalistic text about peace, 
At some point, you're going to get to the notion that, that, that peace is arrived at through tools of, uh, of Torah. And that's where we're up to in our text, chapter 31. This text only has 32 chapters, so we're, we're, we're coming close to the end, to the, to the big finale. But as we get close, and after 30 chapters of exploring the origins of conflict, right? Where does conflict come from? It comes from tzimtzum. It comes from, essentially, a distortion of reality, right? And where does peace come from? It comes from an assertion of what the true reality is. And on a deeper level, there's even divisiveness. There's even, maybe not divisiveness, there's even diversity within the source, because the plurality comes from the space of oneness. Nonetheless, when you, when, you, when you go back to that source of oneness, to explore the source, when you go back to the source of one, which is the source of plurality, you realize that the plurality in its source is also one. But what carries that message? Torah. And specifically, the deeper secrets of Torah that we're studying. Right? This that we're studying is actually what we're talking about. We're studying Torah, we're studying the white fire, the Kabbalah, the Kabbalah, and it's exposing the truth of all reality, that all diversity comes from oneness. And like we said last week, it's all an expression of God's ability to create space for multiplicity. God has the ability to go high, high, and to go low, low. High, high means to hide from us to create a platform of diversity. And God has the ability to shine and to eliminate diversity, or not eliminate diversity, but to reveal the truth that the diversity is all one. But God wants us to do the revealing for ourselves. God wants us to find the truth and where, which book, which work carries that message. You guessed it, it's Torah. Tell him he cannot do that, especially when I'm teaching. Okay, so that is, that is a little bit of, of where we're up to. What we're, trying to. what we're trying also to understand is that even when we see division, even when we see division, and it seems so real, it seems so divided, at its core, it's really one. Remember, monotheism means at the core, it's one. There are no two sources. There's always one source. So even in the highest realm, diversity is born of God's ability to do this and that. But it's the one God's ability to do this and that. We see this in Torah as well. Torah, I'm going to share my screen with you once again, what we just explored. This will be the final intro before we jump in. So the verse here, chapter 33 of Deuteronomy, verse number 2, the one that's uh, gray with a gray background over here, right? That my hand, virtual hand is uh, moving around, talks about the Torah, which is the fiery laws Rashi explained. Again, here the translation is lightning flashing at them from his right. Okay, the way Rashi would translate it is, Eish das lamo means that God's fiery law was given from his right hand. So God's right hand gave the fiery law. 
This adds one more layer of intrigue, of mystical intrigue to our conversation. And that is, what is fire and what is right? As f- not right versus wrong, but right versus left. Right, as you may know, is always associated with chesed, with love and loving kindness. The right side is chesed. That's why we get dressed the right side first. That's why we step into the amida, right side first, etc. Right is always the giving, the kind, the loving, the generous side. So God gave the Torah from the rights, from his right hand, so to speak, in a generous, loving, and kind way. But what did he give? A fiery law. Fire is always associated with the left side, with Gevura. Fire is associated with heat and passion. And sometimes, you know, when a person's fired up, they could be volatile, maybe angry. That's a left side dynamic. Right side is love. And yes, love can be passionate like fire also, but typically fire is associated with the left side, with gevura. So the right side is chesed, loving, loving kindness, and the left side is gevura, fiery passion and, uh, and, 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 and constriction. Two different energies. So what's the Torah saying? That the, that the Torah itself was given as a fire from the right side. Torah itself is a blend of both energies, the right and the left, which means that when you study Torah, you get a synthesis of both energies. The energies that appear to be diametrically opposed, the right side, the left side. You're a righty or a lefty. I don't mean which hand do you use, right? Which side, what personality are you? A right personality or a left personality? Torah itself blends the two together because at its origins, it's a fire given from God's right hand. Are you with me? Torah combines on an energy level the right energy and the left energy. And that's why we have in Torah, for example, the positive mitzvot, do this, and the negative mitzvot, don't do that. You have positive um, instructions, Do this, it's going to be good, it's going to be loving, it's going to be amazing. Don't do this, it's going to be negative and destructive. And that's the way we educate. And that's the way we parent. We tell our kids, do this, it's great. Don't do this, it's not great. We smile when we talk about the positive things and we we give a, a stern, it doesn't mean we actually are being stern, but we give a stern appearance when we're explaining the seriousness of what not to do. So for example... Let's go back to my example with Shabbos candles. So our three-year-old is lighting Shabbos candles. She's not three, by the way. She's four. She's almost five, she'll tell you. But when she was three, she she, she began lighting Shabbat candles. The first Friday night after her birthday, we taught her how to light Shabbat candles. So we told her from the right side, right right side, we told her about the beauty of the mitzvah, how fun, how wonderful it's going to be. You're going to light with mommy. You're going to bring light into our home. We love you, etc., At the same time, from the left side, we gave some, you know, some cautionary words about fire. You have to be careful and you have to watch out and you can't let it on. You can't ever. With all the precautions, nonetheless. You see that? That's what happens. Ellie, come. He fell off the chair. Gravity. Ellie, come. Come, come, come. I love you, buddy. 
No. Ooh. Oh no, he just hit his hand on the computer. Man. All right, so at the same time that we share, come, let me hold you. At the same time that we share the positive message about the Shabbos candles, we also have to share, I'm not saying the negative, but the cautionary notes. We have to share the idea, we have to share the idea that fire could be dangerous, and you have to be careful when you're lighting fire, and you have to be careful around fire. So you have the right side and the left side energy, but it's combined as one. It's one message about the mitzvah. It's one message. Come, come here. Go upstairs. Ellie, Ellie. Go upstairs to Bobby. Okay. So that's the message. Torah also contains two realities. Torah contains the right side and the left side. Torah contains right energy and left energy. The positive and the negative. One could even break down and say the white fire and the black fire. Right? The different fires also represent Kabbalistically right and left. But the point is, the Torah is not an either-or. The Torah is an and reality. The Torah is a this and that. Because the Torah, like fire, is connected with its source. And like light, the light is never separated from its source. The Torah is never separated from its source. Or me'ein ha'ma'ar, light always reflects its source. And the same thing is true with the light of Torah, it reflects its source. Just like its source, which is the essence of God, is one and pure and true and combines and contains all of the opposites in a unified fashion. The same thing is true with Torah. And so when we study Torah, bottom line, when we study Torah here on earth, like we're doing right now, we are exposed to the truth of all truths and the reality of all realities, which is that all of the diversity is at its core one and coming from the same essential place. Now, with this in mind, we are going to, after much ado, <laughs> we're going to jump into our text inside and, and read from the text. But I want to take a moment and check in and see if there are any questions or comments on all of the uh, on any of the things that we discussed heretofore. Yes, Donna. Wait, don't forget to, un to unmute. Yeah. Thank you. So we often see this duality right today, and then in the Sephiroth energies, and then also the animal soul versus the humans. You know, this we constantly see these dichotomies. Yes. Yes. Each dichotomy leads to the same lesson? Yeah, when we see the dichotomy, what Kabbalah encourages us to do is look further and realize that what seems to be a dichotomy, what seems to be a split, that is almost unbridgeable. It's like, you see it this way, I see it this way, we have, we have no commonality, like we can't even be friends anymore. I have to unfriend you on Facebook, right? Because you see it this way, I see it that way. We have to get to the core and dig deeper to realize that at its core, chesed, gevura, whatever two energies you want to find in the planet, whatever, no matter how far they appear as they, as they um, emerge here on this planet, right? No matter how diverse they appear, ultimately are one. And they ultimately are dual expressions of the same truth. Now again, does that mean that every opinion, that every action that's expressed or done here on earth is all the same? No. But does it mean that there's hope for us to find 
commonality and an essential uh, bond between even diverse perspectives? Yes, absolutely. And but we need both. We need both. A hundred percent. God, the say, that's and that's what I. That's really what last week was about. To say that atzmos, which is what Kabbalah refers to as the essence of God, in atzmos, in the essence of God, you have a duality of again. I don't want to say God's a duality, but you have this dual energy. Oh, that's not good. Okay. Um, of God, God is the ain't so the infinite is high, high, and low, low. High, high means that God can self-contain and allow other, otherness to appear. And God is also able to be present and eliminate otherness or make everything one. So the point is that all the diversity is but an expression of God's pure ability. And all of the oneness is the same expression of God's pure ability. They both express God's ability. Right? Like we said last week with a teacher. The teacher can express, teach by expression, and the teacher can teach by not expressing, by withholding. That's also teaching. So, again, it, it's, it's the idea of valuing the diversity and recognizing that this too is an expression of essential unity, ultimately. But it takes a deeper perspective. That's why Torah and Kabbalah tries to drill it into our head. And that's honestly what we've been doing for the last year and a half is, or a year and a little bit, year and a month or two, is every Sunday morning. This, the, I mean, every week is a little bit different, obviously. We have different ideas that we're talking about. But the core idea is the diversity is really at its core one. And, and the more we know that, the more we can get past the externalities of the difference and realize the harmony that is present and, and then bring that out to the surface. And that's the beauty. Think about, let me give you one more way of understanding it. Think about a symphony. Imagine how many, imagine a, a huge symphony orchestra. How many, how many pieces would be in a huge symphony orchestra? A hundred? Is it possible that you have a hundred Different musical instruments playing at the same time? Yeah, is, that, is that a thing? Yeah? It's, yeah, it's up there, yes. All right, so let's say about 100, let's see, 100 musicians on stage playing a symphony. I'm going to ask you a quest, simple question. Is every musician playing the exact same thing? The answer is no. They're not playing the exact same thing. But because of that, they make a unified music. Now, it could be chaos. I mean... Just go to your local, uh, you know, whatever. You have kids that are not trained, right? I'm not picking on kids. I'm just saying if, if, if someone's not trained and yet you have different people playing, you know, just their own thing, it could be chaotic. It is chaotic. But when, when you recognize the potential for oneness within the diversity, well, then you can work together. And no one has to give up. The one playing the... The brass, yeah, I don't know if I'm saying this right, is not playing the strings. You, you're the expert in the brass. You're the expert in the strings. You're the wind instrument. Everyone, no one's giving up their identity. But when you recognize that at the core, you can be on the same team and be diverse and be unique, then you have a beautiful symphony. Then you have harmony. Otherwise, you just have chaos.
So the difference between chaos and harmony, it seems like it's a huge difference. It's really a mindset. It's really a mindset. Do, and it begins with the simple question. Do we see the potential for harmony or do we see the inevitability of just chaos? What do we see? Do we look at the world and, 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 and people and opinions and, and nationalities and everything? Do we look at all of the above and say, chaos, that's it? Or do we say, wow, what a beautiful potential for harmony. Can you imagine the symphony that we can create together? What's your mindset? What's my mindset? So Torah's mindset is the latter, right? Torah's mindset is, look at the beautiful concert that, you, that, that y'all can, can produce. Just get on the same page, right? Doesn't mean to give up who you are. Doesn't mean to sacrifice your identity. Means to using your unique identity, gifts, talents, abilities, play your music along with the others. You're playing the piano. 108 keys, 108, is that, is that correct? Yes? No? Piano 88. 88, thank you, 88. I knew, I, I knew there was an 8 there somewhere. 88 keys. Guess what? You don't want all the keys to start sounding the same. If you're playing a piano and every key that you hit makes the same sound, uh, it's time for a new piano because you're not going to be able to play a song. The whole piano works because of the melding together of different sounds to create something beautiful. All of us are like keys on the piano. And we have to, and, and our beauty is in the fact that we play our note in concert with the others. So that's, that's the key. And by the way, you can't rely on some you know, master divine pianist to get everything on the same page. That's our job. Our job is to be the key and also to be able to bridge our key with the other keys. No one said it's easy. Whoever said life was going to be easy? But one thing's for sure. The notion that, you know, this is it. We're doomed to, uh, to chaos just because everyone's different. That's not, that's, that's, that's not, that's not kosher. That's not, a, that's not an okay. Yeah, Susan. Um, I typed in the chat the, the oh, term warm demander. I don't know if I've talked to, to you about this before, but when I'm teaching my student teachers sort of their their attitude or their framework of dealing with students, I would teach them this idea of warm demander. It's not my term. It's in education. But then when I started studying Kabbalah, I realized it's this beautiful blend of Gavora and Hesed, which makes beauty. And it is these two energies that you keep talking about, and it's the combination of that. And as teachers and as parents, we have to be the, that warm demander. But that warmth isn't just being nice. Like, you truly have to gain your student or your kid's trust, and you right. have to really deeply love them. But then you also have to have the boundaries, which are stated very clearly and explicitly. Right. I love that. I love that term. So I'm actually not familiar with that term until now, but I love that. Warm demander. You have the chesed, the warmth. Soon. And you have the demander. And you have the demander. Okay. With you, it's just warmth. I love you. All right. You have to speak with mom. So, I love it. So we have the ches and the gvura blended together. And each one, it's not a lazy blending, as you're saying. It's a, it's a very active, difficult, intentional. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's uh, labor-intensive. 
emotionally intensive experience. And that's what makes it beautiful. All right, good, excellent. Thank you for sharing that. All right, let's jump in now. Let me share my screen. And the exciting return to our text. I love this. You know, look, my, you probably know my structure for teaching these texts, which is to talk about it and to give you the uh, kind of the core and the application of the ideas and then to, to look at it inside. But knowing that when we look at it inside in the original text, very often or, or often it's going to be written in a way that is coded in another language because that's the way that Kabbalah has often been, been coded. So I, I've done the decoding before we read the code. I, I prefer this method. I guess we could read it first inside and then I could explain it, but I prefer to give you kind of the decoding, the tools of decoding and then to jump inside. So let's, let's begin. Um, let's begin from from the middle of page 69, okay? Which is basically this page that I have up here. I'm just looking back to see where's the good place to start from. We definitely did this first paragraph that began on 68 into 69. So we are up to here, which is right in the middle of this page. Um, but just to kind of recap a little bit without reading it inside. So chapter 31 began with discussing the notion of delight and how Torah represents supernal delight, which we spoke about a few weeks ago. The light being the, the, the highest dimension of, of experience. You have you know, um, actions and feelings and ideas and desires, but delight or pleasure is the highest experience. Torah comes from divine delight. Torah represents God's pure essential delight, which means that Torah is really connected with God's essence. As you see on the top of the page, that essence with a capital E, right? Essence right there. So that is what Torah is synonymous with. And the way that's reflected is that Torah, just like God's essence, has both, um, both dynamics of high and low, up and down, right and left, chesed and gvura, right? So too, just like God has that in essence, but in essence, there's not a duality. It's a oneness that, ha that contains all possibilities, including the possibility of opposites. So to the Torah, even as Torah is manifest below in this world, Torah also contains all of the opposites in a way of complete oneness, which is the model for how we're meant to live our lives, both internally within ourselves, unifying our own diversity, and externally, which is unifying with somebody else's diversity or uniqueness. My uniqueness or my individuality combining with another indiv another's individuality in harmony, as Susan just mentioned, to ferret harmony and not focused on the polarization. Okay, so that is essentially a, a recap of that first paragraph. Now let's jump into paragraph number two, which is this divine light, which I'm highlighting right here just to be sure we're all on the same page. All right, this divine light, which is the Ein Sof light, which we said last week extends upwards without end and downward without limits. So in the Ein Sof, the infinite, you don't have a duality. It's, it's oneness. But the oneness itself has all possibilities, up and down, 
Chesed and Gevura, but in a state of oneness. So this divine light from the essence descends, look at this, the divine light, the infinite divine light of the divine essence descends from the supernal delights of the Ein Sof to delight in the Chachma wisdom of the Holy Torah. Again, Torah is connected with the infinite light. So he says, the infinite light descends from the delight of the infinite into the delight, into the pleasure of the wisdom of Torah, which comes about through studying, through the study of the innermost reasons of the Torah. Look at this parenthesis, which is beautiful. And the parenthesis is in, one second. The parenthesis is, I believe, in the original, in the Hebrew. One second, let me just verify that. Because brackets, yes. Yes. So what he says here is, where in Torah do you find the highest delights and pleasures? It's when you study Kabbalah. It's when you study what we're studying, right? You could study, you know, the basic ideas, the laws of Torah, and it might be interesting and compelling and intellectually stimulating, but when you study Kabbalah, it's really spiritually thrilling and delighting. So the infinite divine essence, which is manifest in the infinite supernal delight, is then manifest in the wisdom of Torah, which is also delightful to study, specifically the, the Kabbalah. On this level of Torah as well, just like it is in the source, where, dua where um, duality is unified, on this level of Torah as well, there is an interrelation. In other words, there is a combining and emerging of both chesed, the right side, love and kindness, and gvura, the left side. As it is written, and this is the verse that we focused on today, that Torah was given, giving them, God gave, I don't know, I don't, uh, all right. God was giving them from amid fire, Gevura, the Torah that was written with his right hand. That's, that's the way the, 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 the verse is translated. In this text, basically God gave us the Torah, which was written with his right hand, which represents Chesed, but God gave it amid fire, which is Gevura. You also have the notion of the black fire and the white fire. But either way, Torah, which is chesed, is also combined with gvura, the fire. Torah has this quality of unifying opposites. Again, I, I, this is the whole theme that I've tried to share with you today. That Torah is, at its core, the unification of opposites. Rooted as it is within the supernal delights of the Ein Sof. Why is it that Torah is able to unify opposites? Because what's its source? What's its root? It is the supernal delight, the pleasure of the Ein Sof, which in that source, which combines Chesed and Gvura. So just like in the source of God's essence, there's a unification of Chesed and Gvura, for, as we said last week, the Ein Sof light extends upward, which is Gvura, and descends downward, which is Chesed. So just like in the core, in the essence, there is a duality. But again, I want to be very clear here. When you talk about duality in essence, it doesn't mean that divine essence is split and fragmented. It means that in essence, there's a oneness, and, and both the up and the down, both the gvura and the chesed, are as one in that source. So just like it's one, the diversity 
is unified in harmony in the source and the essence of the Ein Sof, the infinite essence, and the delight of the essence, so to the way that delight is manifest in the wisdom, especially the spiritual wisdom of Torah, it's also represented and manifest as a bridging, sorry, as a merging, as a harmony of both Chesed and Gvura, a unification of opposites. So, in short, in my own words, in, 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 in hopefully very short and clear terms, I'm going to use this, the, the most simple words that I can use right now that I can think of. God is one. Torah is one. When we study Torah, we're connected with the oneness of Torah and the oneness of God, and then we have a shot of being one within ourselves and with the other. That's it. It's all about oneness. God at God's and God's oneness is not one that precludes opposites. God's oneness is a oneness that combines opposites. The Torah's oneness is not a oneness that precludes diversity. Torah's oneness is one that contains diversity. And the same truth is with us, we who study Torah and study the secrets of Torah, we're meant to combine in our own lives, in our own experience, the diversity into oneness. Therefore, even as the Torah has descended and been drawn within the order of Ishtashalos, in other words, even as Torah has descended from its source in the Ein Sof pleasure and has become manifest here below, even below, as you and I study Torah, black and white, letters on paper or parchment, the Torah below also combines the two levels of Chesed and Gevurah. Torah below also bridges and harmonizes opposites. It has chesed, it has gvura, it has love, it has severity, it has positive mitzvot, it has negative mitzvot, it has an outlook of giving, it has an outlook of withholding, and it's all combined in one core essential reality. Torah is therefore called truth. Why is it called truth? Because it is the mediator which includes the ascent and descent of chesed and gvura. And that is why there is no space, there is no container, there is no enclosement of the Ein Sof light, except in the wisdom of Torah. Because the Ein Sof light is all about unification. And what in this world is unified? Only the wisdom of Torah. Well, and us, through our choices after studying Torah, Hopefully we can unify, right? That's our calling. But what is obviously in a state of unification on planet Earth? It is Torah. That is why. Where is God's essence light revealed? In the wisdom of Torah. Torah is called truth. As we said in, the Latin, in chapter 30, truth is synonymous with a combination of opposites. Truth is harmony and truth is what combines that which appears to be opposites. So... In summation, we've concluded chapter 31, which essentially elaborates on what we, what we started explaining in chapter 30, and we've had a pretty consistent theme over the last several weeks, and that is that God contains opposites. Sorry. God can handle opposites with elegance. Torah can handle opposites with elegance. You and I, our calling is to study Torah, to toil in Torah, to jump into the beautiful wisdom of Torah and to also gain the skills of tolerating 
embracing, tolerating first, but then embracing and appreciating opposites and discovering the harmony within diversity. That's our calling. That's our mission. It hasn't changed since last week or the week before. And, it, and honestly, there's still some work to do. I'm just looking around a little bit. Not, not present company. Right? Present company excluded. There's still work to do in this regard. So, once again, my encouragement and my charge for us all, myself included this week, is when we're confronted with an episode or an experience of polarization where we're feeling the other, we're othering someone else or someone else has othered us. You know what I mean by othered, right? It's me versus you. Let's recall the wisdom of Kabbalah and this truth about Torah and this truth about Ain Sof and the truth about fire and the truth about our own soul. And let's recognize that at the core, all of the diversity is stemming from the same place. And it's our job to put in the work to find the, to find the bridge that connects the diversity and transforms it into harmony. That is our task. That is our avoda. That's our job. All right. I want to wish you all a good week. We got a lot of work to do. Don't forget, spread the light. Just like Hanukkah, it's about spreading the light. Spread the light. Spread the Torah's light. Spread the light of Kabbalah. Spread the light of these teachings. The idea is that we have to know, we must know, that we are one and we are united even when everyone else tells us that we're fragmented and we're, you know, we're broken beyond repair. God forbid. We are one and that never changes. If you want to see the truth, study some Torah and bring it back into, into uh, everyday life. All right, that's it for today. So I want to make a few quick announcements. Number one, we have a new Talmud course that's starting. Number two, we have the jewelry workshop next week, the Hanukkah jewelry workshop. Shipping is still possible. Holiday shipping is still available. So um, it makes a great gift for, uh, for the Festival of Lights. We have just a few kits left. I think maybe four or five left. So if you want one, please let me know. If you got one already and want a second one, let me know. We can make it happen. Um, also, this week, take a, take, watch the email and Facebook and social media from Intown Jewish Academy because in the next few days, we're going to be announcing some very exciting um, programs, including, it's not confirmed yet, so don't hold me to this, but I'm working very hard on this, getting one of the chief engineers in Israel of the Iron Dome. You know what the Iron Dome is? The Iron Dome is that protective, um, it's not actually a dome, but it's in Israel, it's what shoots down incoming rockets and missiles. So one of the creators and architects of the Iron Dome, a rocket scientist, live from Israel to be presenting on the miracles of the Iron Dome, the, the, the creation and the implementation and the miracles of the Iron Dome in conjunction with Hanukkah, thinking about ancient miracles, and modern-day miracles. It, the goal is to do this on the Saturday night of Hanukkah, to have a latka party, virtual, virtual latka party, and a talk live from Israel at like 3 or 4 a.m. Israel time from this uh, top scientist. So I'm working on that. Stay tuned. That would be really exciting. For us, it's like 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so for us, it's comfortable. For him... 
Not so much, but he, I, think, I think he may go for it. So, I mean, you know, we've been, we've been collaborating for a while. We've been exploring for a while how to do this, and this is how I think it's going to play out. So hopefully we can get him. We can, we can make it happen. Um, anyway, my point is stay tuned for more stuff, for more, for more opportunities to connect and to learn and to explore. And the main thing is, per this class, to recognize the oneness. It starts within. We have to look to Torah to find that. We have to look to God because God is the ultimate oneness and then manifest that in our own lives. Thank you for joining. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion on fire and my various fire props. And I, uh, I wish you all Shavuot Tov. Thank you again. Oh, who wants this? Pleasure, pleasure. My pleasure. See you all. Take care. Bye, everybody. Bye, Mariana. Bye, everybody. Bye, Linda. It's great to see you. Thanks for being on. Bye, Sandrine. Take care. Bye, Joy. Bye, Alex. Bye, Donna. Take care, everybody. Shavuot Tov.